and welcome to the Turtle Tracks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here with um, the legendary Pat Fraley, the original voice of, actually, the only voice of Krang. Well, it's nice of you to say, uh, Brian, but I'm one of the thousand Krang voices, but I'm the original. Well, I mean, the rest are just sort of Krang, but I feel like, you know, whereas there's, there's many Donatellos and there's many Michelangelos, there's only one Krang. Well, I don't know. You know, I've heard some pretty darn good ones. I did originate that weird voice. It's the weirdest voice I ever created. And I've heard uh, my buddy Brad Garrett do it and uh, Roseanne Barr. And they're different in Noel North. They're totally different. But when they do an imitation, it's weird. Because I remember imitating Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and and even impressions like Ed Wind. Who is that kind of guy? He talked like this. And Paul Lynn, when I was imitate him, we doing cartoons. And I didn't give it a second thought, but to be the guy that created it and hear people do impressions is kind of interesting. It doesn't make me angry. It's kind of cool. You know, that's true. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, 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 also worth including uh, Gilbert Godfrey in there because he was another crank that's right. in that series. And he, But he did his own thing. Right. By the way, I worked with him on camera on a, a sitcom, and he's like a quiet, nice guy like that. So all of that Gilbert Gottfried stuff is something that he created. There's a new documentary that's about him called Gilbert that's fantastic. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to on Netflix. Yes, it's very good. So uh, on to you. So when did you get into uh, acting? Uh, I, well, when I was four years old, honestly. There was never a time in my life, Brian, that I thought about being anything else but a performer. When I was four, I was doing Army with the other kids, and they wanted to shoot me because I would die so good. I'd fall out of a tree and arch my back and foam, and we always played, you know, I don't know why. I was on the West Coast, but we never played Japanese Americans, always uh, G.I. Joe and Nazis. And, oh, I died like a Nazi, like, ah, they loved it. And then I would get up and say, okay, the next one, you go around this way, and, that, and I would direct or teach. And my entire career, up to this point, sitting here talking to you, is about teaching and acting. And my acting went all the way through to getting a Master of Fine Arts at uh, Cornell in acting. And then I emigrated to Australia and learned about voice over there, but never thought about doing cartoon voices. That just happened because I was naturally good at playing magnified characters that really had a sense of reality to them. They had a kind of a, like, good farce. It's never just goofy. There's kind of a smack, it smacks of reality. And I always had that. Yeah, there's certainly an iconic quality. I mean, like, and for those who don't know, I mean, you've been in, there, like, there's over 200 uh, IMDb credits. There's you were in Hulk, Alvin and the Chipmunks, GI Joe. There's count like everything you were basically in. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, a lot of us had we hit what would be called the golden age of animation. That's when shows went from Saturday morning, and there are more, to after school. And when I started uh, in the late 70s, I was doing Scooby-Doo villains. Now, Brian, we'd go in and we'd do 13 shows total from maybe May to June or July. And we were done for the year. 
because they would put them up in reruns every quarter. So you really can't make a living that way unless you have, you know, Frank Walker or Dawes Butler and you have 10 shows. You're not making a living. But here's what happened. In 1983, He-Man hit from Filmation, and they were after school Monday through Friday, and it was huge, and there's part of a a deal they made to make that happen. You know, the uh, producers would sell and trade for time, not money, from the Channel 11s and 13s, where they syndicated, and that's where they were. Okay, get this. They had such a huge share of market. Everyone jumped in, and so our buy of the show wasn't 13 anymore. It was 65. And and everybody was there. So, you know, Neil Ross had nine shows running at the same time. He had to have a little cassette player so he could be reminded of what voice he was cast on on a show. And a lot of us started and really ramped up in the 80s up until the 90s. Then I had my modicum of success in different shows, and I can only point to first having a, uh, I had a reputation of being able to work fast, but I think it's that aspect that God gave me, and that's, I never lost the stem to reality, even though the characters were huge. Yeah, it's like I'm thinking of Crank, there was a certainly a, like, you like he had all these multifaceted like he was very whiny and like but he was like this also very villainous and intimidating. There's a lot of facets to a character that you is just a pink blob. Well, you know, if you scrape away all of the things I did, the undulating rhythm, the cottony placement, the real high to low placement of the puffy sound, talking backwards, which I learned in the fourth grade. If you scrape away all of that, what I was doing was a Jewish lady. I thought, you know, I had to add humor. So I said, this is what I get surrounded by idiots. So I had knew enough about Jewish mothers from working, uh, you know, going to school in the East that I could do that. So if you hear, you know, if you imagine a Jewish mother and then hear this underneath. You hear it? Yes. <laughs> I, use, I use the little for like, like fine whatever shredder. Uh, yeah, underneath all of that is where I got away with murder, and I had a sense of humor for him. There was also things I learned in acting that I brought to the, uh, you know, the studio. In all those scripts, even the early ones, they would have Crane go about trying to you know, rule the world, and then something would go wrong, right, in the technodrome. And he always had a big line, it said, with lots of O's, and, and it went, oh, no, with about five exclamation marks after it, right? And I was to perform that almost every show. It was sort of his signature thing. We were going to lose. Well, I had it in my mind you know, and here we go to acting training and motivation that he knows he's a loser and he's trying to get over it. So every time I come to that line, and I have a line before, like, I need to rule the world. And you have the oh no, and I go, oh no. That little. <laughs> because it's the moment when you realize this. He's been a winner. He'll never be a winner. Well, then, then it's then when he's revealing his true self. Like, he's realizing. That's right. 
Yeah, and only there. Everywhere else, he's lying and trying to pose and trying to, and he's getting frustrated because Shredder um, insults him and all that stuff. Yeah, he's lying to himself and to the public. All the rest of uh, everything he says is a lie. Except there he goes, he knows. It's like mom told me I was a loser and I am. And it was all for show. That's so funny. You never think of it that way. But yeah, he was, I mean, he loses, you know, basically every episode. So yeah, totally. it's all for show. Yeah, totally. So it's fun to play a liar because the focus is not on you sounding and telling the truth like it was on Raphael with Rob Paulson. He had to, all his lines had to sound like a real teens or a real person and react like we would, so we would identify. I don't think anybody identified with Grant. <laughs> Did you? I hope not. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I didn't. I didn't identify with him in any aspect. It, it, that's, that's not so good about a claim about my acting. I guess really good actors find something about what they do for example, my friend Ed Asner, who is a wonderful actor, and he did years back the Mary Tyler Moore show, and he played Luke Grant. And recently, he shared with me uh, and, his, and some of my students that the way he got that comedic, the Luke Grant character, was thinking of his brothers and how bombastic they were. Huh. And he said, I had a difficulty when I went to the dramatized Luke Grant, because then I had to go, well, I didn't go inside me for Grant. And in fact, a lot of work I, I, I didn't. Uh, just an outside player in some ways. Uh, you know, the sound. But, uh, but of course, you do it enough and you really get to get nuancy with it because you know the role so well. But I certainly didn't identify with him in any way, shape, or form. Now, what, what would you say? I mean, you've had a vast career. What would you say would be the one you most identified with, the character you've played? Well, that's a good question. I suppose it would be Huck Finn in the audiobook uh, on the bridge version of The Adventures of Huck Finn. When I went to do it, and I took two and a half months to produce it in the studio. Um, my director said, remember one thing, and that is he's an abused kid. So he's looking at people who like him and who dislike him. That's the world for an abused kid. That helped me. Other than that, all the reactions, and partially because you have to do so much and make so many choices, all came from inside me. I like that one for critical acclaim. I like crying because it was so commercial. And the third one that I liked, and I, I, it really doesn't, um, it doesn't deal with your question, but it was a Tailspin, and I did Wildcat. Who, who's like the ignorant but lovable uh, mountain lion? But Louis, you should really shoot that at Africat. Oh, look, did you do it on the map? No, it's Guacamole. <laughs> and somehow, that charming, naive character, um, the reason I, I guess I bring it up because I'm identifying with it is because I didn't think at all. I would look at my line and he had his own way of doing that line. I made no choice. It was up to Wildcat. Hmm. So I don't, it doesn't really answer your question, and it's a good one. Uh, but, I, you know, doing cartoon work, there's not a lot of characters that I was given, because I got a lot of comedic villains and wild and woolly characters, um, that 
would lend me to identify with, at least not in my work. So what, when did Turtles come to your attention? Like, when did you, like, how, what, what made you go out for the role? What, did, what appealed to you about it? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, for a lot of us, we never had a choice about what we did. We would turn down work if it were rude or we had a penchant or a reason not to do it. But, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the glamour of doing a cartoon show was getting paid to do something fun. And I, I came, uh, I kind of came about it because I got a call from a producer that I worked with on the Great American Bunny, and that was Fred Wolf, the producer. He'd actually hired Barry Gordon too, and we worked on that movie. He'd done the point totally, uh, Fred Wolf, and he had this project. He called me at home. He said, "Would you like to audition for a role?" I said, "Yeah." So I went down to the studio. He gave me a couple minutes to put it together, and I auditioned for Crank. And it turned out that the director had recorded the pilot and he had cast himself in four major roles in the series. And done it, you know, I'm just remembering a long time ago, on a Saturday. And that was a lot of money. And that irritated Fred, so he recast it. He recast the director and parts. So originally I had four parts. And I told Fred. Wolf, I can't do four characters because originally I was cast as Burn Thompson back to stock when we were around, you know, the fly guy. Put that like that. You know, I wiggle my throat. Um, Crane and Vernon Thompson, or it was his last name? Vernon, he was the newscaster. Which I, I went to Fred and said, I can't do this. You got to give it to another cast member. He gave it to Pete Renaday. And I'm telling you, Pete was the funniest person in the cast. We would all crack up more at Pete than anybody else because he was such a scaredy cat in the way he did. It was, it was wonderful. So uh, I also did uh, uh, Casey Jones. Hello, Violator. How are you? And the funny part is people said, how did you come up with that character? Well, we were going so fast, and Fred Wolf, Fred Wolf was cheap. He didn't like to get um, guests in because it cost more money. So we all had to do everything. That's why all of us did like 40 characters. And uh, they gave me Casey Jones. They just handed it to you. Because who's right on the contract? I am. There. Boom. A picture. And I go, well, who's he? Well, he's a young, um, you know, like a renegade. What do I do? Do a young Clint Eastwood. Yep. That was all. We didn't get the notes. We had to come up with stuff fast and on our own. Usually on our own. You know, that's the question I have about Krang is like, you know, everybody else seemed to be, I, I wonder if it, like there was more notes, whereas did you create all the burps and gurgles and all that noise? Like, was that, did, was that all introduced by you? Yeah. Well, what happened was I got this uh, picture and it said that a burbling, chortling, villainous carrot blob of the brain, but funny. And so um, I've been teaching and um, as I mentioned all my life, and I taught six elements of character pitch, pitch, characteristic, tempo, rhythm, placement, and mouthful. So what I did is I, I said, i got to make a choice on each one of these. You know, like pitch, I'll make it behind a very big range. And uh, tempo, I'll, I'll uh, uh, have him go very fast and very slow. And rhythm, I'll give him an undulating rhythm, like my bad Catherine Hepburn. And mouthful, I'll make him hot and sort of hard to understand because they have tentacles. And I'd make sounds like, 
know, and then then I thought, oh, talk backwards, or you no, know, when he get ang when he gets angry, and I guess this is like an actor's work. When I got angry at that time, because I had four boys in five years, and they were all little, and when I would get angry and start to yell at them, I would get hard for. I go, Pat, pick that, pick that up, oh. Like that, right? Like a fake burp backwards. And so I said, well, I'll do that every so often. Like, I'll go, come here. Well, I knew enough from doing cartoon shows. They'd never let me do that between lines because they kind of go fast. But I thought, I can do them on the lines. Because in recess time, when I was in fourth grade, I learned how to talk backwards. So that's what I would employ. So often on the last, you know, a word of a of a sentence. So I'm putting them all together within two minutes because, and you know, two things. First of all, I have no fear of risk. I don't believe that I risk anything by being silly or stupid. That's one thing. Number two is that uh, I I made so many choices. The character was outrageous. It's the most outrageous character. Honestly, I've ever heard, <laughs> let alone me too. Um, and so I went in and did that, and it was really vivid and bold, and I got cast. But, but Brian, let me go back to this risk, because I'm teaching right now, and I'm preparing some information. Uh, people talk about risk, the same, you know, then they'll teach them skills and go, oh, yes, but you must risk. Well, risk implies there's something to lose. When in fact, the only way people get cast is by doing it a little different than other people. So if you think of that as a risk, risk, yes, you do. But it really isn't a risk, is it? I mean, what are you going to do? You know, get get uh, sued by someone because you did a wrong duck voice? You just <laughs> won't get hired. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, I had a, a hand, you know, I had a step up on the other actors because... Following rules never would get me what my neuroses told me I needed to get. And my neuroses, as a little kid all the way through my career, was, Pat, you've got to be special. Because my mom told me I was special, so I spent my entire career trying to prove her right. By the way, she was wrong. I'm not special. But I got a career out of it. So I, I have no fear of whatsoever of risk or birth risking something i don't i don't i don't get it right because it's not your life on the line it's just your it's your creativity it's it's your inventive well yeah and i don't have anything anything to lose and i won't get what i need or did need that's to feel special by being like other people and following rules so it didn't work for me so i got i got something out of it it's kind of interesting it always reminds me of an interview that bob dylan did um, after he did his, um, his his album where he covered Frank Sinatra songs. Yeah, right. Bob Dylan, Sinatra. It gets better. Uh, the interviewer said, oh, didn't you think this project was risky? And Bob Dylan says something to the effect of what? Like working in a poisonous gas factory or walking through a minefield? I don't think so. <laughs> And it reminds me, you know, it's like, no, it's not really risk. They just continue not hiring me. 
I'm used to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good to keep that humility. I mean, like, I, I, I write for a living, and it's that, you know, I'm not digging ditches. I'm not, like, putting myself in danger. So every time I'm stressed out, I mean, sometimes you get a little self-centered, but you try to think, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not doing the <laughs> There's much people, people working much harder than me out there. Brian, you are correct, and that's a different thing. That's additional. If you get the job, um, if you don't get a job, your butt won't fall off. And if you do get the job, it's not really work. Oh, yeah. And that's that's what you're talking about. You know, uh, some people actually get up and they go and do jobs. And that's really hard because a lot of times you're doing jobs without passion. And all my life, and I know as a writer I speak for you, there's a passion to teaching for me and to performing and, I hope, writing for you. Oh, certainly. So if there's no money, not everything goes away. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine not doing it, you know. Yes, yes, so the, 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 that's one of the things. I can't imagine not doing it. And I were, I've worked my whole career with people like that. I mean, uh, I was watching an interview with Tom Hanks in Meryl Streep on The Post last night, and the interviewer said, who got more money? And not only did Tom Hanks not know if he did, he didn't know how much money he made, which, which astounds me, but I believe him. Well, after that many million, I'm sure you lose track eventually. I Apparently, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm more like David Mamet who said, it's not the money, it's the money. <laughs> I always know what I'm making and I'm looking for my residuals, but you know, I have a student, Nancy Cartwright, who I teach privately and she does the voice of Bart. Of course. And... And um, I think it's, it's reported she made 375000 a week. Now, it could be higher than that. It's not lower. But she called and said, I need some help. I said, what? Spending the money? I can help you for one week. <laughs> and then I'm done. But, but I don't think many of us in any area in 2018 don't think about money or are tempted to think about money or the lack of it every day of our lives, if not a dozen times a day. It's such, you know, the Bible verse, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, there's all kinds of problems that come out of money. And the biggest one is not having enough, I think. I, I don't know what it's like to have too much. That could be its own, you know, barrel of snakes, but I've never been there. <laughs> we'll take their word for it then, I guess. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious, what were the recording sessions like? Were you guys all together, and did you record, like, someone in sequence? Well, no, we never... Well, as far as the way we recorded, we if somebody had two different characters, we would switch our voices and do them in a row. We never uh, clustered and then had the editors chop it together. And we were all most always together. Because... Uh, well, Fred was, you know, frugal, and he wanted to get things done fast, and that's the way we did it back in those days. And we also, I sat next to Rob Paulson for probably nine years. Now, I never saw James Avery's face because he was at the t at the front of the studio in all those years, but I heard him and I knew how he acted and stuff, and uh, so that's the way it went. It was like going to school for nine years. And sitting next to the same person. So really, my job was to make Rob laugh. 
And and that really that's where I focused on. He was my audience, and when he didn't laugh, he'd cover his face and turn away. So I knew I was getting him. And you know, funny part is we never had scenes together. Raphael barely ever spoke to Crank, but we were always handing each other ad libs that we suggested the other person use, and I'm using each other. I'm a huge Rob Paulson fan. I'm, in a couple of days, I'll be going to um, one of his Animaniacs live shows. It's the second one I've seen, actually. He's just amazing. It, it, he's astounding. Yeah. It was very facile then, and he got really good during that show. Why? Because they'd say, you're a thug. Well, I've got a high tenor. You're a thug now. So he learned how to make characters and fulfill archetypes with his unique equipment, which is a high tenor. But, but what astounds me about Rob is his facile ability at singing. I mean, he used to come over to my house, and I remember him uh, doing the country song, you know, you know, you know that song, right? We list all the countries in the world. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, yes, of course. He, yeah. He would do an a cappella for my voice. You know, off the top of his head. You know, it's funny, I, I don't know how to equate this, but, like, um, there's a quote, and I, I'm not going to, I don't remember the quote exactly, but there's a quote about Dick Van Dyke dancing, about how much, like, he's not the best dancer in the world, but he has so much fun doing it that you just, it's infectious. And I feel the same way about Rob Paulson, who's a fantastic singer, but, like, it's his energy and his, like, light from that that's really the most amazing part of it. Yeah, and you don't think that he's singing. You don't think about, like, you don't think about Cagney or Dick Van Dyke dancing, and you don't think about Rob Paulson singing. Uh, yeah, he's amazing. He, he makes it look fun and effortless. Yes. Yeah, and I, so, I can't do either. <laughs> Me neither. Um, so another person I want to ask you about was, so what was, what was James Avery like? James Avery, interesting, was apparently a very good Shakespearean actor. He was kind of a snob. You know, he, he was sort of an erudite, and he would not do anything uh, what they call urban or, you know, African-American. Because, he said, I can't. Every time I try to do that, I feel my mother's hand slap the back of my head. <laughs> Which is interesting. You know, you know, back in the day, he was my age. He'd probably about, be about 70 now, but he died a few years ago. But he... Um, he was of an age where, you know, if you were in that middle-class culture, upper-class culture, in you know, African-Americans, one didn't speak that way. Now, we're used to Dave Chappelle's idea that every African-American is bilingual. Right? You get me on that? Mm-hmm. Two different languages, but not James. He would not go there. Plus, uh, as good an actor as he was, and I've done one other show with Hulk Hogan, Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. He really did not go into subtext as an actor. He played one note and one. It was always angry. He was a single Johnny one note with that character. So I knew that I could go all over the place and be very nuanced because it would balance well. In fact, I, I think somebody, or maybe it was even me, we referred to Krang and Shredder as uh, the uh, odd couple of outer space. Because <laughs> it was like a married couple. They'd write, and they'd argue like a married couple. 
And he'd just get fuming, and I knew he'd get angry no matter what I'd say. That's why I was really about getting him uh, and hurting his feelings. Well, I think that was another question I had is, if from, you know, from the Krang perspective, what was the nature of or even the purpose of the Krang-Shredder relationship? I have no idea. You know, it, it came from Peter Laird. There are weird minds. I have no idea. I don't know why there were two villains. And, and in fact, there were more. There were Baxter Stockman. You know, we went through several villains. Some died, but Krang didn't and Shredder didn't. Shredder seems like the obvious villain. And Krang, I don't get him. He was just like this added weird thing, you know? There was in charge, I guess, but Shredder used to not take him like a... He, he never taught, treated him like a lord. Yeah, they just kind of... They, they were just like an old couple. They just bickered. Right. Absolutely. Maybe in somebody's wisdom came along and said, we need dialogue between the villain... Or, uh, with the villain, and they came with two. I've never seen it done before. Because you figure Shredder would eventually just move out. Yeah, or just uh, kill Crank. Yeah, true. <laughs> he was quite vulnerable. Crank had no body. Why not? <laughs> so I'm curious. Somebody from from somebody who's been through uh, generations now of of voice acting. How has the business changed from an actor's perspective since the late '70s when you started? Well, when I started, it was all kind of Hanna Barbera, uh, uh, Wild and Woolly style. There was no, there's no realistic characters that were that were presented, either visually or vocally. And then, as time has gone by, certainly with Batman being the one, the first realistic animated cartoon, um, the styles have changed. The acting has gotten so much better and so much uh, more purposeful. I mean, the the style is all way up. It goes all the way from melodrama, sitcom, wild and woolly, bone reel. Also, it, it's all over the place. And that requires the actors to do different styles of, uh, of performance. And so I guess it's, it's better and more... It's better with a much wider style spectrum. What about, like, in the recording room? Because, I, I mean, like, I, is it so common now to have people play off each other the way they did back in the old Turtle show? No, not at all. Um, in fact, Pixar rarely puts people together. They just record you you drop dead, and it's not, poor editors find great takes, put them together and make this wonderful ensemble feel. Even better than ensemble. But they don't do ensemble anymore. It's too much money. Plus, with the introduction of video games, which really require you to, you know, just, it's such a puzzle, you have to get one person into all their lives to the next person and put the puzzle together afterwards. I think that's sort of like rubbed against animation. And we don't do, uh, you know, cast recordings very often, which is too bad for the actor. We loved it. Yeah, I imagine that, I mean, like, even though, like, I mean, you watch something like, you know, talking about Ed Asner, Up is a fantastic film, but I feel like from the actor's side, you probably would lose some of that camaraderie of never meeting your co-stars. Brian, he, he uh, Ed told me he, he, if he recorded with the kid once, he maybe he did, but probably not. And uh, Natalie Lyon, 
who cast it and was very involved. She cast everything with her partner, Kevin Rule, said that they had to cobble that kid's performance together. I mean, by the word, the editing. It was really tough getting him together. But you see the movie, and it's perfect. Oh, yeah. It's like they were in the same room all the time. No, not at all. So, what do we know? I guess right, yeah. If the end product is the same, but yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I, you know, I hear the same thing about directors like uh, uh, George Stevens, right, who was a 31 to 1 ratio filmmaker. He'd shot than he needed. And then Hitchcock is like 3 to 1. And Woody Allen's like darn near 2 to 1. The actors have to beg for another take. So, you know, who knows? That's not my job. <laughs> So I'm curious, uh, what was it like to return to Krang after so many years off? And there, so you recently guest starred. You've guest starred twice, actually, on the uh, on the 2012 series. What was that like? Oh, it's a delight because I see the guys. We get together. There's about three of us in on each session. It's 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 not a problem whatsoever to do the voice because, you know, you do it for nine years or 200 shows. I mean, it's part of your life, and you know, you, you just. <laughs> You, you don't even think when you do the role. I don't, when I get a line, I, I get the words right so I understand what they are. But Crank does it. I don't do it. But you give him a line and I'll tell you, he'll tell me how to do the line. So it was a, a delight as far as performance. But I, what I love is being with Cam Pluck, who, by the way, is my cousin. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah, he's a, a cousin. Uh, our, uh, my grandfather and his grandfather were brothers. And so, and then there's all they shared. They were Mormon. They shared a different mom. That was the difference. But uh, but you know Barry Gordon and Rob Paulson. Uh, it, it's they're a real camaraderie. Not I'm. It must be kind of akin to be in the military because you're stuck together for so long. But we have a great affection for each other. In the entire cast, by the way, we didn't have anybody that was picked on or wasn't part of the group. We everyone loved. Everybody. It was a wonderful uh, cast to be in. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, I, I'm winding down a little bit, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the rest of the voice actors there. So, Cam Clark is your cousin. What was his energy like on the on the set? Well, he was a straight guy. He's a very smart guy. He's uh, a, a little bit nervous, uh, but he was perfect for that role. And he, we always teased him, but he never got any funny lines. Um, come on, guys, get it together. He was always trying to get them together. So he was very well cast for that, because he is kind of a straight guy. Then Barry Gordon has always been an egghead. He's, he's really, I mean, when he went through uh, doing Donatello, he was literally going through law school. He'd come with his books, do his part while he studied going through law school. He's an egghead. Um <laughs> Rob Paulson playing Raphael, he's a smart aleck in real life. And he was, he was just doing his own voice. He's smart aleck, right? And um, Michelangelo, played by Townsend Coleman, well, Michelangelo, Townsend, had like four children all going through middle school and high school. He knew the culture, the young culture, and how they sounded and what to do. He wasn't that young, but he knew it. So it was really well cast. And Renee Jacobs was wonderful because she was very straight. She hadn't done a whole lot of work, uh, but she knew how to do a straight girl and bring Jeopardy to the role. And Jennifer Darling had been around 
a long time, and she played a lot of the comedian role, roles like Irma, and so she knew timing, and she was an old she was an old school. Renee was young, so it was a marvelous. Uh, you know, I don't know who, who cast. I think Fred did, but what a job! Yeah, you listen to it, and it's such a diverse sound of voices and everything. And uh, you know, it's funny. I was going back, and before interviewing you, I, I went back and revisited a lot of the episode, a couple of the episodes. And I went to the first episode of Krang and the last episode with Krang, and I was shocked at how consistent it was. Like, the other turtles got, like, a little crazier as time went on, but Krang was very, like, it was like he remained, he was as crazy in the beginning as he was in the end. Right, well, you know, the writers were very good. David Wise, once they, uh, the first year we ad-libbed a whole lot. The second year they wouldn't allow us to ad-lib that much. But we didn't need to, because they were writing for the characters. And so, Insanity Krang was written throughout, and the insults to Shredder, to Krang, and Krang to Shredder, they loved writing. So we all, we were in good shape with the writing. You know, I gotta say, because I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, the show is just, like, people view it from a nostalgia point standpoint, and I certainly do, because I grew up with it. I, I There was right. a time in my life I remember before Turtles. But the writing on the show, especially the gags, are very good. Like, it's it, the constant... Like, I'm a huge Marx Brothers fan. So, yes. Krang and Raphael, notably, breaking the fourth wall constantly was hilarious to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very wise writing. One of the best written shows. That and The Tick were the best written shows I ever did. Oh, goodness. Tick was amazing. Yeah, it, it, you know, the writing is jaw-dropping. And, uh, you know, it's all about the writing. Because I don't believe that acting is an art form. It's a craft. It's a support craft. And what does it support? The writing. Yeah, if you ad lib, then you bump into an art form. That's writing. But I don't think acting. I think it's a support craft. And when you've got good writing, man, you can ride that pony. Well, uh, that covers most of it. I had I had one final question from you. I asked this of everybody I've interviewed, but from Krang, I'm particularly curious. Who's your favorite turtle? I hate them <laughs> Perfect answer. Well, this has been Turtle Tracks with your host, Brian Van Hooker. Uh, big thanks to Pat Fraley. If you want more information about him, go to patfraley.com. And uh, big thanks to the guys over at Turtle Flakes who we're doing this show in conjunction with. So, uh... Until next time.